Well, this morning, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Exodus to hear the Lord speak to us through the word. And the title of the message this morning is The God of Knowledge and Power. The God of Knowledge and Power. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, page 55, if you're using one of our pew Bibles there. And we're going to pick up the story where we left off last week. We're walking through the book of Exodus, and so if you uh, have missed a week, I want to encourage you to go back and, and hear the weeks that you have missed. It's on our podcast uh, channel. If you have a, a phone, you can download the podcast by searching Nelsonville Assembly. You can go to YouTube, go to Facebook. We have those there with the exception of one week where we had a video issue, uh, so they're not on YouTube or Facebook, but the audio is on our podcast channel. So I encourage you to go back and listen to those, because week by week, we're, we're walking through a story that's unfolding, and we're building upon what we have seen every every week in the last text where we end. Last week, we got about halfway through, a little more than halfway through chapter three, and I'll just refresh us or remind you if you don't know where we are in the story. What we've found ourselves is, is hearing about this encounter between Moses and God at the burning bush in the wilderness of Midian. God speaks to Moses from this burning bush that's on fire but not being consumed, and he reveals his holiness to Moses. He tells Moses that he, as God, has seen everything that has happened. He knows everything that's taking place upon this earth, and he says, I am the God who is personal. I'm the God who cares for my people and loves them, and I'm coming to redeem my nation, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And God reveals this incredible reality of who he is, giving his covenant name to Moses. When Moses says, who should I say you are? When people ask, he says, I am who I am. He says, my name is Yahweh. That's what it means. I am who I am. And as we looked at last week, that means God's not like us. God doesn't point to anything else in all creation and says, well, I'm like that, or I'm a little bit better than this thing. He says, no, the only thing you can look to to understand me is me. I am utterly unique, holy, unchanging. He's the eternal one. And that means he can be trusted and relied upon completely. And God has said he intends here to save his people from Egypt, and he desires to use Moses, but Moses, note this, is weak and fearful. And that's where we're going to come back into the story today. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, where we concluded last week, and then we'll move into this week's text. Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, so say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. And then God continues to speak. The text where we'll pick it up this morning is in verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what you have done in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk. And honey. Now, if you have read the text just above you or you were here last week, notice this is just God repeating what he had said to Moses that he wants the people of Israel to now hear. He's commanding him, go out, tell the people this, God has seen you. 
He sees everything that's going on. He knows you. He knows the suffering you've endured. He knows the evil that's happening around you. He knows the generations of hardships that have been endured by you. God knows all of it, and he's not far away from this. He's not uncaring. He's not unconcerned. He knows. He sees, and he's coming to fulfill the promises that he has given to our forefathers. He will deliver us. He will bless us with a new home, a, a rich land that's flowing with life and goodness. God has great things for us. He's on the way. And look at the text again in verse 18 to 22. God says this to Moses, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Notice carefully two things in this section of the text here. Said by the God who knows all things. Remember, God is never wrong. He never says a word that is false. If God says something will happen, it will happen because he is the God who makes all things come to pass according to his perfect, all-powerful will. He cannot be wrong. He cannot be in error. And so in verse 18 here, God plainly says, Moses, when you go and tell the elders of Israel this message of what you have seen and what I, Yahweh, have said, they will listen to you. This is a statement of fact by God. Not a possibility, not a potential. It's a prophetic promise to Moses. This will happen. And then in verse 19, God also tells Moses, <clears throat> the elders of Israel, they'll respond to you, but Pharaoh, he will not. In fact, he says, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Now, of course, this is exactly what Moses fears, right? And he knows that would be the result of him showing up to the most powerful person on earth at that time and making demands like, let the people go. Not just let this, this little group, my friends, I want like 40 of us, we're going to go do this thing. He's going to show up and tell Pharaoh, hey, let my people, the two million slaves that you have building cities for you that you're exploiting and taking advantage of, I want you to let them go. And Pharaoh's going to say, no. Right? Moses knows that's what's going to happen. He would not even give them three days off to go worship Yahweh in the wilderness. The Pharaoh's heart will be hard. And yet, notice, God knows this. And he says, So I will stretch out my hand, and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and after that he will let you go. Again, this is not a scenario that may happen. This isn't a potential play that God's just wanting Moses to get ready for. Okay, if Pharaoh says no, then I'm going I'm to do something. Let's just work out some possibilities. No, this is a prophetic word of promise. Moses, this is what will happen. Now go and do as I've told you. Pharaoh will resist. He will not heed the words you speak to him, Moses. But I, God, will stretch out my hand in power, and I will compel Pharaoh to let my people go. 
So with these prophetic promises from the God of providence that we talked about a few weeks ago, the one who sees all things, who's at work in all circumstances, the one who speaks truth, Moses responds to this God in chapter 4, verse 1, in what should be a bit of a surprising way. Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. Now, if we're just reading the story, like if we're just picking up in chapter 4, verse 1, that seems like a simple and pretty natural response for Moses to voice this concern, right? Moses has been gone from Egypt, remember, for 40 years. He's living in the wilderness of Midian in exile because the last time Moses went and tried to save his people in Egypt, the last time he tried to deliver them, it ended up with him murdering an Egyptian, burying him in the sand, trying to hide that fact, but it coming to light, and then Moses having to flee because Pharaoh finds out, and what's Pharaoh going to do? He's going to kill him. And so Moses leaves the palace, leaves all the privileges of Egypt, runs off into the wilderness, and spends the next 40 years building a new life out there in hiding. Naturally, Moses has reason to fear. The last time I tried this, it didn't go so well. Here I am, out in the middle of nowhere in Midian, right? But just because that's been his previous experience doesn't mean his response is right or just. In fact, it's quite wrong altogether. Understand, the response of Moses here to the word of God is actually sinful. And it's a negative example for you and I. We should not be like Moses in the way he responds to God here. Because remember, what was the statement that God made just before Moses says this? God had spoken to Moses and told him, I know what will take place. I already know the future, Moses. I already know what's going to happen. And here I'm telling you what the results of your obedience, your going and doing what I have said will be. I know what the people of Israel will do. I know what Pharaoh will do. And yet Moses here in this response, what he's doing is he's questioning the word of God. It is a denial of the divine revelation that he had just received. Moses is contradicting God. The almighty one whose presence is manifest in this bush that's burning without being consumed. Moses is doubting that God truly knows what will happen and can truly bring about what he has said. So Moses, his response here, it's disobedience to the command of God that he's been given. Go, Moses says, eh, I don't know. What if they don't believe? But just as God had answered Moses' previous questions very graciously, when Moses asked, but who am I to do something like this? And, And who are you, God? God responds graciously towards Moses here as well. Look at verses two to nine. Yahweh said to him, What is that in your hand? Moses replied, a staff. God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But Yahweh said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Yahweh said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. Then he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. 
And they, if they will not believe even these first two signs or listen to your voice, you shall then take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, last week, like I said, Moses asked the two most important questions that everyone must ask. Who am I and who are you, God? And those were answered in amazingly powerful, life-changing ways if we understand what God said in response to those questions. But here, Moses is continuing to question God and object to God's commands, not out of a sense of wanting deeper understanding, but out of fear and doubt and weakness. But God graciously responds to Moses by revealing not just his knowledge of all things, but his power over all things too in these signs that he gives. Right? God tells Moses, take the staff that you're holding in your hand, the simple piece of wood that most likely has had for years, right? He's been carrying around this piece of wood as a staff as he's wandered around the desert. He's used it to, to guide the sheep, maybe to fend off something, to walk with it as he's traveled. It's a simple piece of wood. It's been with Moses. He knows exactly what that is, probably knows where he found it, right? God, when he throws that staff on the ground, God miraculously transforms the simple piece of wood into a living serpent, There's no tricks here. There's no sleight of hand, no distractions. Moses, look over there. Whoa, snake. No, he was watching this piece of wood just instantly change into a living serpent, real live snake there upon the ground. And I find find the story really amusing. The, The Hebrew language here is really descriptive of what's happening here. So Moses, when it changes to a snake, he runs away. Why? Because he's afraid, right? And then God, is, God tells Moses, hey, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. The, the literal phrase there is take hold of it firmly, decisively, grab it confidently. But the language says Moses snatched at it cautiously, right? Like kind of fearfully eh, reached for it and grabbed it. Now I find that amusing because what it's underscoring for us is the reality of what's taking place here. This is a real snake. And Moses is freaked out. Wood doesn't change into living serpents, Right? It doesn't happen. You don't see that. It's a little fear-inducing, especially if you don't like snakes. Right, Heather? (laughs) So that's naturally already terrifying. And to be fair, if you see a snake there and someone comes up and says, hey, grab that thing by the tail, that's really bad advice if it's anybody but God saying that, right? That's not how you grab a snake that you see on the ground. Most of you don't even try to grab the snake, right? You're going for the gun or the hoe, and you're going to chop its head off, right? But God says, reach out, grab it firmly, decisively, take hold of this. Moses kind of, "Uh, I don't know, I'm still fearful, still hesitant, but does it. And what happens? God demonstrates, I'm the God who can change a piece of wood to a snake and back again like that. And Moses, you have nothing to fear in obeying what I have told you to do. God demonstrates his power over creation. None of us can do that. Like, you may be into a little bit of magic, a little card trick, a little sleight of hand, something like that. You can't change something that's a piece of wood into a real living thing and back again. That's the power of God. And then God demonstrates, that's not the only power I have. It's not like I've got one trick up my sleeve. Here we go. And he goes, no, let's do this. He says, Moses, I have power over sickness and disease and disabilities as well. So God inflicts Moses with leprosy as he simply draws his hand inside of his cloak. And then God heals that fully by the same motion again. Like, understand, this isn't like God making it better. Like, our kids get a little scratch. Oh, you know, the world's ending. We give it a kiss. Does it feel better? Yeah, it feels better, right? No, this isn't that. It's not healing a scratch. It's not uh, 
just removing the sting of a sunburn. This is leprosy. Leprosy is a terrible, terrible disease. Truly was a plague in the ancient world. When the text here says his hand was leprous like snow, it's not saying his hand turned white, the color of snow. It says it's become like snow. His skin began to flake and fall off like snowflakes falling. Right? Leprosy is a disease that when it, when it gets into the body, it rids the body and begins to create decay and causes things to die, and body parts literally fall off with leprosy. And leprosy wasn't just terrible suffering personally, it was highly contagious as well. We're talking the real type of deadly contagion that double masking doesn't help, and there's no vaccine to keep you safe from. If you encounter someone with leprosy, you're going to contract it, and they have a death sentence, and now you have a death sentence too. This will kill you. And God demonstrates, I have the power not only to inflict this horrible disease upon someone who's all alone in the middle of the wilderness, no leper to to come into contact with, just right there in a moment, I can give you leprosy, and like that, I can heal it. He is the God who can do incredible things. His power is not limited in any way. And these are just the two signs Moses is shown first. The third sign that God gives, he doesn't actually demonstrate to Moses in that moment, right? Moses is in the wilderness of Midian, and he says, when you go back to Egypt, there, the Nile River, the most famous river in the whole region, take some of the water, put it in a cup. When you pour it out on the ground, I will turn it to blood then. Not going to turn to blood in the cup, so you can check and make sure it worked, right? Act of faith. You're going to get the water. You're going to say, believe Yahweh has spoken to me. Dump it out. It's water all the way down. It hits the ground, and then it will be blood because I have the power to do that too. Now notice, God has very graciously revealed himself to Moses. He's answered all his questions. He's revealed his holiness. He's given him his personal name of Yahweh. He's promised Moses, I will go with you on this mission I am sending you on. I have knowledge of the future. I know exactly how everything's going to work. Watch my power. You think anyone can stand against me? Here's what I can do with a simple stick. Here's what I can do with a hand outstretched. And yet Moses again replies to God. Look at verse 10. Moses said to Yahweh, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Now here's the fourth reply that Moses gives. And the heart of the issue is really almost fully exposed here. We can kind of see it and we'll see it come out in the next statement. Moses, at this point, he's objecting to God. And this time he's citing not lack of knowledge, not God, do you have the right power? But but God, I'm not the right vessel. I don't have the skills needed to accomplish this mission that you're giving me. And Moses doesn't believe he's a capable speaker who can go stand before Pharaoh and make the demands that God is telling him to go and make. He's just not eloquent. Perhaps he has a speech impediment. That's what tradition tells us. Moses probably had some physical challenge like that. It could even just be nerves. Moses uh, maybe didn't have a lot of success with public speaking in the past. He's scared. He really believes, I'm not qualified, I'm not capable, I can't do what you have said. And yet, when God responds to him again, and he will, just as we saw last week, notice, he's not going to affirm Moses. He's not going to say, no, Moses, come on, you're a really good speaker, man, you got this. He's not going to pat him on the back. He's not going to remind him, Moses, your natural abilities are incredible. You've been trained in Egyptian. Almost no Hebrews in this day know Egyptian, but you, but you do. You've been educated. You're the right man for the job. God doesn't build Moses up at all. Look at verses 11 and 12. What's, what, what's it say? Then Yahweh said to him, 
Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. The response on the part of God is to draw Moses' focus back to God himself. It's not about who Moses is or what Moses can do. It's about the God who's created Moses' mouth, who says, I'm going with you. I'll teach you what to say. I will give you the words to speak. God reminds Moses, I'm the creator. There's nothing too hard for me. I made that stick. I made the serpent. I made your hands. I made your mouth. I'm the God over all things. I'm the one who controls all things. If a person is even deaf or seen or blind, all of that is within the power and the hand of God. And it will all be used by God to fulfill his purposes. Now, I understand that's a really hard thing for some people to grasp, even religious people, even Christian people like us, to grasp. In fact, the disciples had a hard time grasping this truth, that God is the God over all things in this way. They asked Jesus in John chapter 9, verses 1 to three about this very thing. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Surely there's got to be an explanation, a, a, a consequence for something that's gone wrong. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the natural inclination that we have, for some reason, is to assume that God is really far away from hardships and difficulties. That all of it, it's got to be the result of something outside of God, far away from God, maybe personal sin, maybe it's someone getting what they deserve. But God, God certainly has to be away from those type of things and not active in those things. In fact, hey, this is what Job's friends kept saying to him, right? When Job's going through all the suffering and his friends, who are not really great friends, keep showing up and going, Job, man, you're, you're suffering so terribly because you're an awful dude and you're just hiding it from us. But, but you've got some sin. That's what's going on here, right? They just keep over and over telling him that. They don't know that God's doing something amazing in Job's life. They can't see it. This is the natural response of men so often to suffering. We try to protect God as if he needs protecting. But Jesus completely rejects that view. He tells his disciples, this disability of this man that we're looking at, born blind, the hardships that he has endured his entire life, all of that is part of God's plan. And all of it happened to bring God glory. God isn't far from hardships. He has a plan to use. All of them. That's a really radically transformative view about how we're going to live our life and how we're going to respond when hardships come if we believe Jesus. To believe that having a hardship or a disability or a sickness or some kind of weakness, and it's hard, don't hear me say it's not hard, it is hard to go through these things, but if we believe Jesus, we would understand it's all part of God's plan, and it can bring him glory, and that will change how you and I respond to the hardships and the challenges and the difficulties we face. I know this is true. You know this is true. If you step back for just a moment and you look around this room, there are so many in our own church family who have suffered real hardships and real challenges and handled them differently than the world would handle them because we actually believe Jesus' words. God's working in it, right? So everything from cancer diagnosis and treatments to suffering a stroke, a heart attack, to surgical complications that take place, to having disabilities or physical limitations, even to suffering the death of a child, 
Those are real and brutal and difficult and painful, but every time they come up, we are reminded our God is not far away from those moments. They're all within his hand, and he is with us in them. He's the God over all things, and we must know that he can and use all things for his glory if we are to have hope to get through those things. The reality is we just don't see how God's working in the moment most of the time. It's difficult in the pain and in the grief and in the suffering to get that perspective that God is at work, that there is a plan unfolding here. He's the God who has created all things. Faith is trusting and living in that truth even when we can't see, even when we can't understand. God is always working. God knows exactly what skills and abilities or disabilities Moses has because God made him. And when God wants to use someone to accomplish his purpose, he does. He's the God whose knowledge and power is without limit and without error. But Moses, like us, struggles to believe and to respond properly. And so here, finally, he just lays out the heart of the matter. Look at verse 13 in chapter 4. But Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Literally, please send anyone else. Just not me, God. See, incredibly, this response that Moses reveals here, it's the heart of the issue. And incredibly, that's the response of many of us today when we're told to do something by God. Like, let's just, let's just take this and let's apply it to us. We are just like Moses in his lack of faith and his disobedience. Those two things go together. Don't miss that here. If you're a person of true faith, you really understand who God is, what God has said, then you will obey him. But you will be disobedient and sinful and rebellious and negligent when you don't believe God is who he has said he is or don't listen to what he has said. We're not really that far advanced and different from Moses like we like to think we may be. Just like Moses, we're going to throw out the same type of excuses to try and justify or excuse our disobedience to God today as Moses did in the wilderness of Midian. The objection of verse 1 in chapter 4 there, it's still in our hearts today, and we know, hey, we're supposed to go and tell others about Jesus. We're supposed to tell others about our God, about who he is, yet the fear that Moses had is the fear we have often too. What if I do what you say, God, and people don't respond well? Right? That's Moses' objection. What if it doesn't go well? What if they don't believe? I don't want to go try because I'm not sure it will work. We make that same excuse. Or verse 10. Now, I've been in church long enough. I've talked to enough Christians to know this is an overwhelmingly common excuse for disobedience still today. What Moses says in verse 10 is simply this. Yeah, I'm not gifted enough to do that. I don't, I don't, I don't communicate spiritual things really well. Maybe I don't feel like I have the answers to the questions that they might ask. I, I'm kind of slow in speech, right? I'm not quick. I don't, I'm not just going to know that off the top of my head, so I, I, I won't be effective as, as a witness, as a messenger for you, God. No, I'm not the right person. Right? I mean, a lot of Christians buy into this thought, even in this room right now, telling ourselves, hey, Surely the hard things of faith and obedience and sharing God's message, that's, well, that's for someone else. That's not, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not trained. I'm not, I'm not a pastor. I've got a job. I've got a regular family life. And hey, I mean, you know, really, I'm, I'm pretty messed up. I've got a broken background. People know what I've done, what I've said. 
right? If I go and try to share about God, they're not going to listen to me. They may outright reject me as a person, and, and, I, and I don't want that, right? That is the thought of many hearts of Christians even today. But hear me clearly, that thought, those thoughts together, they come from disobedience and disbelief of God. It's not sober humility to think, no, God can't use me. That's a heart that's rebellious and self-deceived, just trying to justify disobedience and disbelief. Going back to Moses and the objections he makes and the way God responds. Remember, Moses was expressly told, go and do this, go share the message, and listen, the Israelite elders, they will believe. Pharaoh will not initially, but I, God, Almighty, know that. It's part of my plan. I will stretch out my hand. So go, do these things, and watch me work. God's saying the same thing to you and I today. Go, tell others about who I am. Go, tell them what I have said. Tell them what I have done. Tell them of the gift of grace that I offer to all who trust in Jesus as their Savior. And the promise he makes to Moses is the same promise today. I already know what the responses will be. Watch me work. That's what he's saying to you and I today. Will some reject us in the moment when we share the message of God? Yes. That happens to Moses. Pharaoh rejects the message, right? That happened every time the apostles preached. Some believe, many don't. It happened when Jesus preached. Some believe, many won't. Go back to John 6, which I alluded to last week. You'll see there are many who believe the message of Jesus himself preaching to them about the way of salvation, and there are many who reject. And in John 6, Jesus explains that God knows all of that, and he's still in charge. God's not sitting there shocked at any point. He's never surprised and trying to come up with a new plan because, man, I really thought this was the day Bob was going to believe and Bob didn't believe. And ugh, Okay, plan B, guys. We got to do something different. He's never surprised. He already knows and he's working in all of it. He knows every response because he's the God who is. He's the I am. He never changes. He never ends. He knows all of it. He's the God of knowledge and power that's unlimited, unconstrained, unable to be stopped. So if we have faith, we understand any rejection that you and I see or hear now, it's not the final word for God. He's the God who spends generations as the great I am. Yeah, you and I, we will face failure and rejection here and now, but God is still at work. We can be used to plant the seeds. Maybe we're used to pour a little water on a seed that has been planted. There will be a harvest that sometimes you and I don't get to see. We just get to be a part of producing. Sometimes God's timing's not ours, right? I mean, to see his plan unfold in the life of Moses, it's been 80 years so far. 80 years, a long time. For Moses, you're going to deliver the people. But it takes 80 years to get to this moment that we're looking at right now. God can even use the rejection of rebellious sinners to bring glory to his name, as the story of Pharaoh will demonstrate in a few weeks from now. But that's getting ahead of where we go. But some, again, even in this room, we want to make the same excuses and echo Moses' words in those objections or just flat out say what Moses says in verse 13. Lord, please send someone else. Anybody else but me. But listen carefully to this warning that's been in my heart all week thinking about this message. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This, like I said, has been what's been burning in my heart for you, sharing this with you today. Do not let the unbelief and evil of our sinful natures lead any of us astray because it's a danger to us. Sin is deceitful. It's what causes us to throw out these excuses like Moses did, to object to God saying clearly to all of us, go, proclaim, be used by me in this great work that I am doing. See, the rest of chapter 4, which we can't walk through for the sake of, of time this morning, but the rest of chapter 4 is, is very striking here because it shows the fully justified and righteous response of God towards those who arrogantly think they get to defy the Holy One, the great I Am, making petty excuses and unbelieving disobedience like Moses is right here. Exodus 4.14 tells us Yahweh's anger was kindled against Moses for his excuses. Then in verse 24, it's a rather complex passage in the original language and the story here, but the anger of Yahweh is again brought forth towards Moses because Moses fails to be obedient and circumcise his son as he ought to have done, showing that he believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's revealed himself to Moses. Hear me, God doesn't wink at disobedience and disbelief. He's not indifferent towards disobedience. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't just shake his head. Oh, man, that's, that's terrible. He doesn't pretend it's not happening. You don't get to play games with the great I am. He's the God who sees all things. He's the God who's utterly holy and righteous, unlimited in power, and he will judge every sin ever committed. That warning, my friends, should strike at the heart of every one of us hearing it. This is the word of God. It should pierce our hearts today because we are sinful. We are people prone to make the same excuses of disbelief and disobedience that Moses did. And the word of God is supposed to expose that in us and draw us towards repentance. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, just a chapter later from what I just read, says this, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And hear this, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The God revealing himself in Exodus to Moses is the same God who's here today looking at you and your heart and your response and your excuses. The I am, Jesus, the great King of kings, God Almighty, the one who's utterly, totally holy, demands a response of obedience and faith from us in every aspect of our lives, even today. And yet not one of us in this room should be so arrogant to think that we do that perfectly, obey him in everything perfectly. We don't. If you're honest with your own heart, you're recognizing this morning, yeah, I'm making those same type of excuses with some of the things God's telling me to do. Trying to convince yourself that some of those hard things, some of that daily stuff that should be a part of your life of faith and obedience, it's not there. And so you're trying to, to create an excuse in your own heart. What hope is there for us who are so broken and sinful? Well, the only hope we could have comes from God himself, from his grace and mercy towards us. And that's ultimately found in the redeeming, saving work that God himself accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ, who came, the great I am, incarnate, in flesh, and if we trust in him, and if we believe in his accomplished atonement, then the next verses of Hebrews 4 give us the good news of the gospel. Verses 14 to 16. Since therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, our faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize 
who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace, help in time of need. Today, you and I in this room, though broken as we are, though the excuses that we make are there, we can draw near to the throne of God and find mercy and grace, help in our time of need, which is constant and continual. You always need God's help. And you will find him today to be sympathetic and compassionate. He will today give you forgiveness and mercy. You can cry out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That today you're in here and you do love him and you do want to follow him, but you're not doing it perfectly. You can admit that to him today. This is the place to go today is the throne of God. Don't run from him. Don't keep making excuses. Don't walk out of here and continue to live in disobedience and disbelief. Respond in faith today by coming to Christ and asking him for his grace and his mercy. If you've never done that, that's the offer that God extends to you. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter where you've been today, today you can lay down your excuses, you can turn away from your sins, you can come to the holy God who saves. Because listen, there is wrath and anger towards disobedience and disbelief. And your sins personally, they will elicit the anger of God. There is punishment coming for your sins, no matter if you think them really great or really small. But Jesus Christ died on the cross to bear that anger, to take the wrath and the punishment of God for his people so that all who would trust in him, all who would place their faith in him would be changed by him in this life as we lay down our excuses and follow him. So like I say every week, these altars will be open and I would love to pray with you. If you think, okay, I need to respond. I don't know how. I don't know how to pray that way. I don't know how to lay these things down. I don't know what it means to, to follow after Jesus. Then come talk to me. Let me pray with you. Don't make any more excuses. Don't waste any more time. Respond to Jesus by coming to him today, even in these altars. And if you have met with God before, many of us have. We know the living God. We want to serve him. We want to love him. Then today, if you know who he is and what he has said, but you yourself have been objecting to something he's telling you to do, if you've been making excuses, you've deceived yourself in your sins, then today lay all of that down. And find his anger is appeased in Christ. The wrath is removed. And when you approach his throne today admitting your failures, he doesn't look at you with dis disdain. He looks at you with love and grace and mercy. Because Jesus Christ is your Savior who's covered all your sins. So don't run from him. Come to him today. Worship team, if you'll come. I'm going to lead us in the final song this morning and give us just moments to respond to him. Listen, there's a lot of failure in this room today, a lot of need for forgiveness in this room today, a lot of sins, a lot of excuses that need to be laid down today. And God's graciously giving all of us the chance to do it. Don't miss these moments. They'll be over in three and a half minutes. The song will conclude. I will pray. We'll walk out of this room. Don't miss this chance to respond to God. Remember the text we opened the service with this morning, the words of Jesus? If you and I lay down our lives and follow him, we will be saved. But if we try to hold on to our sins, on to our pride, on to our excuses, well, you may gain the whole world. You may have the respect and the admiration. Everyone in here may think you're a pretty great person because you're not going to respond to God today and just demonstrate any weakness. You may gain the whole world, but listen, you'll lose your soul, and that's a stupid trade to make. 
Do not be ashamed to respond to him today. Come to him. Find his grace, his mercy poured out for you, a needy sinner who's humble and honest that you need his mercy. All of us need to respond to God today. So let's do it. Before we leave, before our minds go to other things, let's humbly worship and respond to the great I am who invites us to his throne today. Let's worship and pray together. Lord, we thank you for these moments. What great gift it is to come to your throne, knowing that you are God. You know everything. You see everything. And yet, as broken and as messed up and as struggling as we may be, there's grace and mercy there for us. Jesus, we thank you for that. It's only because of you that that is true. It's only because of your love. It's only because you have stood in our place, Lord. So I pray every Christian heart in this room is stirred by that, that we would believe, we would have faith, we would respond to the reality that you know us, that you have power over our sin. You've conquered it. You're with us in every situation, and you would enable us to live a life of faith, a life of obedience from this moment forward, Lord. Change us and transform us, I pray. We thank you for the time you've given us. We thank you for your word speaking to us, your presence being with us in this place. It's in your beautiful, powerful name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen.